All right, folks, so before we get started with this parsha, which, by the way, today I said that I'm only going to cover one mishpatim, because there's just so much in this that the Father wants to relate to us, but just with the first one to help us understand His heart and His purpose so that we can learn to judge in righteousness, folks. But before I do that, and this is last minute, I, want, I just was just reading this because I didn't make it that far. Okay, I want to read something in here in verse 24 in Hebrew because this is very important how what they said connected it with last week's parsha and what we enter into today. I think there's a beautiful connection in here. <coughs> and in uh, Exodus 24, 7, in Hebrew it says, Literally, that means we will do and we will obey. But what's interesting about this, that if you continue next, it says, Moshe et Adam, right? Ha it says in here that he took Moses by Moshe, the blood. But in Hebrew, the blood is, is titled by the Aleph Ta, Et Hadam. Et Dam, I'm sorry. Et, yeah, Hadam, actually. Et Hadam. So there's a definite article connected with the Aleph Ta. Why is this so important? Because it says that, you know, in here, it's funny that they said that we will do and we will obey. Na Proceeding that immediately, the blood comes. Some of the rabbis, the sages, explain this to be that because they, they immediately accepted this covenant without even reading <laughs> the terms of it, the blood came immediately to cover those words. That's why immediately after they said, it literally says that he took the ha, the aleph ta, the et hadam, and placed it upon them. The covering of the blood came upon them. That's really, really beautiful. And why I say that? Because last week's parsha, Jitro, right, ended with what? And how to approach the altar. Now, this is very important. Why? Because Yeshua gave examples about this. And how do we approach the altar? See, he, and Jitro ended up with this saying, do not just go up to the altar, right? Because you will defile it. You know, you, your nakedness will be exposed. But there's a remes in here. There's more than just the priest going up to the altar and exposing the nakedness. But also, it's also revealing how we approach the altar. Yeshua said, leave your gift behind. Before you approach the altar and make up with your brother. The connection in here has to do now with the heart of the person and how they approach coming high up to the altar. Which leads us to this parasha, Mishpatim. Mishpatim is really amazing, folks, because it's going to teach us. You know, most of 90% of Yeshua's teaching had a lot to do with the Mishpatim's. How do we judge one another? 
Now, right off the bat, we probably thinking, Richard, the Bible says that we should not judge. Well, we're going to see about that. Because all of Yeshua's teaching were based on judging. So let's, let's turn into this and see what we got. What mishpatim. Now, it is from the Hebrew word shafat, right? And it means to judge, to decide, right? To govern. But look at this. To create order. How many of us want order in our lives? How many of us want harmony between one another? This is amazing. Now, I'm going to back up for a minute because this root word, before I even move further, if you notice, we have the sheen, the pay, and the tet, right? Shafat, which is what I just covered here. That is the three-letter parent root for this word. But... What's amazing about mishpatim is that this word in the entirety is plural, by the way. You got the im, which makes it plural. But in, in shafat, you also got something that's very interesting. You got mishpat or meshef. The sages compounded mashat also means to split in half. It also carries the connection of mishpat, which is mishpacha. Which is what? Family. So it's the deciding in the middle, if you want to call it, you are in the split in the middle between the families or the tribes. Which means you are the one judging between brothers and sisters. What is the difference between Shafat and Mishpatim? Well, you know, initially as we see this, Mishpatim has a lot to do with the judicial or the order as it says in here, and harmony between brothers and sisters. Now, that's important. Why is that important? Because we are family, aren't we? How we judge one another, <coughs> folks. Remember our last parasha? One of the things that he gave, he said that I'm giving you this word and I'm giving you all these things so that you can make it to the promised land. A nation without order, folks, will collapse. And in the same way, a family without standards and order will also collapse. So right off the bat, we're going to start understanding that this governing system, folks, is not to abuse power. It's not to elevate yourself before your brother or sister, but rather it's to hold each other accountable. It's famously saying this rabbi who, who, who talks about, he said, in my synagogue, when people come in, the people say, who's the rabbi? Everybody says, we're the rabbi. Because the idea is, as one is trained, as you come into the, the covenants of Israel, and you are trained through the proper channel that God has given, and you follow the order, you become a judge to one another. That, you know what that means? That we are accountable to one another. That's the idea. Now, for some of you, that may actually resonate good, but for some others, that doesn't sound too good. And the idea is we need to check our heart. Why doesn't it sound good for us? Because you see, accountability, folks, is something that if you got the right heart, it's a good thing. If you don't have the right heart, you're going to be found out. Mm -hmm. But what is the desire of the Father? That we have the right heart. That we can keep each other. That doesn't mean that we're going to walk around with the spirit of condemnation. And we're going to be pointing out everything that you're doing. By the way, even the way we handle these things, again, we'll... We'll expound more on that later. It has to be in a certain order. We just don't call out somebody in the middle of every in public. 
But we definitely do need to be willing to receive correction as well. Amen. If we want to, by the way, grow spiritually as well. So to judge, decide, govern, plead it, create it, order, harmony, and justice as well, folks. One thing we're going to see in here, in the Me'amlo S, they reveal something very important concerning this. It says, God gave them social laws in Marah. That's in Exodus 15, 25. The reason for this was that before the Torah could be given, all the Israelites had to be unified. They had to have one heart with peace, friendship, and brotherhood with no needless hatreds whatsoever. In order to learn Torah, look what the Mehon Loes says. In order to learn Torah, one must have peace. That's true. Because the one who studies Torah with bitterness won't be able to receive Torah. Mm -hmm. We have to have, we have to study Torah with peace. But look what it says, what I think is very plausible. He says, if people discuss the Torah, it must be to attain truth. Look. Not to win arguments or display one's knowledge. Wow. This is the understanding. This is why it's so important for others to understand Israel, understand the Jewish sages, because more often than not, Yeshua's teaching and thought process came from that. Remember, he was a Jewish rabbi, folks. <laughs> so the idea of the Torah is not to win arguments. But rather, if we got to, that's why, this is why the Jewish people can midrash together, folks. And at the end of the midrash, we can shake hands and smile and still break a meal together. Because we are coming with the understanding that we're not coming to prove our point. But we're coming with the understanding that I want to learn. Amen. I'm not coming to teach you. Or rather, I'm willing to be taught. But how do we handle that today? No, we're not doing very well. Because, you see, we want to come with the Torah because we want to win arguments. Mm -hmm. And now, that's why I don't do midrashes, by the way. And so I see that this congregation is fully ready. Mm -hmm. Because a midrash needs to be, okay, we're coming to learn from one another. And it's okay if I say, well, I don't quite understand what you're saying, so I'm going to have to disagree right now. But I'm not tossing it out. I just, I, I can't process it right now. That's got to be the attitude that we have. Have any of us ever been wrong? Mm -hmm. How many times you have fought an argument about a doctrinal belief <laughs> to find out a year later or six months later that the person that you were arguing with was actually right? It's embarrassing, isn't it? And how we handle it. Because a lot of times we get really, really, really angry and we start acting very ungodly with our brothers and sisters because you know they're presenting something that we don't comprehend. Now, don't get me wrong. There are certain things that, yeah, flat out, they're wrong, and we will, we will express it. But within the containments of the Torah, we need to be open to receive. That's why the Jewish people have the knowledge that they have, because they come together, and they do midrash, and they do expound for one another. Amen? So, thus, the basis of the entire Torah is peace, folks. And this is the foundation upon which everything else rests, by the way. If a person has claims or arguments against his neighbor... How often does that happen? Hardly any time, right? Right? There will be strife between them. But through a system of what? Justice. It is determined who is liable and who is innocent 
and strive will be what? Avoided. See, folks, I believe that if we all come with the echat, the same heart, we will have, it will give very little room for the enemy to work against us. The enemy, we give power to the enemy when we reject the mishpatims. Because if we're rejecting God's mishpatims, then we're accepting somebody else's. And more often than not, it will be our own. We determine what is righteous and what's not righteous. Well, the person that you are offending, they might have a different system, and they're saying, well, I feel it's this way. Guess what happens now? We have strife. But if there's a system, we both can look at each other and say, boy, we're wrong. And we can submit to it. See the idea. And if the system is not for you to agree with, folks, it's for us to just do. Amen? So look, let's take a look in here. If not for social law, civilization will come to an end, folks. Is that true? Absolutely. Anarchy, basically. The strongest person would gain the upper hand. Isn't that true? Don't we say today the richer get richer and the poor get poorer and the rich is always oppressing the poor and so on and so forth because they have the upper hand. They can what? Buy out people, right? This is why the system was created, folks. It's not to put a yoke over you. It's not because God doesn't want you to be free. It's so that you can learn to actually be free and avoid this. Look, the strongest person would gain the upper hand and each one will make use of his strength to take away that which was not rightly his. Isn't this true? I mean, we've witnessed this, I think, on a day-per-day -day basis in the world. How corruption has gone rampant out there. Why? Because either not necessarily money, it could just be somebody stronger. It could be somebody who's bullying you because he is just more powerful or she's more powerful, whatever case may be. Look. As discussed earlier, every judge who gives an honest verdict is like a partner with God in the act of creation. So when we're serving righteous judgment, folks, we are essentially coming in agreement with the creator of the universe. Whether the judgment serves for our benefit or not is important. The idea is that we're coming in agreement with him. So look, and with that said, the idea of the Father is that he wants us to keep what? Justice. Look what it says in Isaiah 56 1. It says, Thus says Hashem, keep justice and do what? <coughs> Righteousness. Literally in Hebrew, it says, Shomer Zadek, Mishpat. Keep righteous judgment. Shomer. It means to guard, to hedge, and to protect. That means that the Father really wants our attention. It's not a suggestion, folks. He's not saying, yeah, I think you should keep justice. Maybe. Depending where you live. He's saying, shomer, justice and do zadik, righteousness. For soon my salvation will come. Who's the salvation? <coughs> Yeshua. So there's a connection between the salvation of Hashem, Yeshua, and us keeping justice into the time that he gets here. We have a responsibility to keep justice because guess what? The master has left and he has entrusted us with a jewel. I'm going to cover that more in just a minute. 
You have been entrusted with an amazing jewel. How are you handling that? Are you mishandling it? Are you treating it right? But we'll cover that in a minute. So it says, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be what? Revealed. Blessed be his name. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, the spiritual person does what? Judges. How many of you consider yourself spiritual? Well, you ought to. It's okay. You don't have to be shy. You ought to because the law is spiritual according to Rav Shaul. God is what? Spirit. So we are by nature, we are spiritual people. You do have a ruach in you. A spirit in you. So guess what he says in here in Corinthians? He says the spiritual person judges all things. Well, there goes that theology that we're not supposed to judge. But look, let's move on in here. Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and what? Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tied mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the what? Weightier matters of the law. Now, is there anything wrong with tithing? No. Tithing is commended. Right? But what is the issue here? He's saying you are neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Yeshua is not coming against the Pharisees, folks, because of their necessarily what they're doing. He's coming against the fact that they are choosing weightier matters or lesser matters and that they're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. So in other words, tithing is not a bad thing, he's saying, but you're neglecting the other parts of the Torah that are very, very important that address the what? The heart of the human being. Mm -hmm. Look. So what is the weightier matters of the law? This leads us to this portion. What is the weightier matters of the law? Justice. Okay, let's start right there. Mishpat. You see, you're keeping the external things of the law, but you're not practicing them because you can only practice the Torah through the Mishpat things. Make sense? Look, he says in here, justice and what? Mercy and faithfulness. These you are to have done without neglecting the others. Notice that it's not a choice of doing one for the others. He's not saying that. He's saying you should have done these ones as well as the ones that you are doing. So if you are in an example here, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, where if you're tithing, then guess what? You shall also be keeping righteous justice and having mercy as well. It all needs to come together, folks. It's not choosing which one I'm going to do. They all are important. Amen? Amen? So now, let's get into now with that set and understanding. Let's start the parashah. This is the only thing that we're going to cover today for the sake of time. Exodus 21.2 says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, it says, right? He shall serve six years, and in the seven he shall go out free for nothing. Now we're going to see really how this mishpat, how is, does it relate to us? How can we pull wisdom from this mishpat? And most importantly, where's the Messiah in this mishpat? Because 
All the mishpats, as we just learned when we read and, 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 and we started the parsha now, have to do with the alitat, the blood of the alitat for the covering. The words that he gave him, they say everything that we will do, everything that you say we will do. And we were benishma, we will obey. Meaning we were here and we will actually put it to practice, so to speak. So it says in here when you buy a Hebrew slave, what we have in here in Hebrew it says, Kitikne Evedivrishanim Ya vot ubashvit yetsalehafeshi. Go out for free. You're a free man, it says. But look at this. Right off the bat, this parasha opens up by saying something very interesting. It says, Ki tikne evet ivri. One of the things that we need to see in here is that this word, let me go back so you can see in, in English, when you buy a Hebrew slave. That's what I just read. In Hebrew. <clears throat> the thing is that in the English it says when you buy. And that is true. This root word of this parent root is kana. <clears throat> and kana means to purchase, to buy. Okay? But what we fail to realize is the way this is actually written in the Hebrew. You can actually have kana. If this word was only meant to be to buy, then it would have just said kana. Because there's evidence in the Hebrew text where it is written as kana. That's it. But it says tikne. What we have in here is another root word and that is tekan. What is tekan? It is from the word tikkun. What is tikkun? The tikkun is one of the most important things in Judaism. The tikkun is the repairing. It has to do with repair. It has to do with becoming straight. It has to do with becoming good. It has to do with repairing you. What is the connection in here with purchasing and tikkun? Because the Torah is opening up by saying that the slave is purchased for the purpose of reparation, repairing. This is very important. Look, you're going to make sense now when I share this piece of information. Repairing, we can even say, right, to become right, who? The Evet, which says the Hebrew, right? Oh, I'm sorry, the Evet, which is the, the, the servant. And the Hebrew, Ivri. Now, it's interesting that this word, Ivri, also is another word for Over. And what is Over? Over means something that's temporary. The sages confound with this. They say that this is a prophetic message of our temporary status in this world as a slave. Look at this. Very, very interesting. So it is to buy, to repair. Now, why would you need reparation? And why would they purchase you to repair you? Well, look at this. In the Me'al Loes, it shares this. In ancient times, when a person stole something and did not have the means to repay it, the courts would sell him as a slave. This is not a higher servant. This is not a... Work relationship, employer-employee. This is literally a sentence. You were caught stealing. And now you have to pay your debt. 
lots of wisdom because what are we doing in here? What do we do in America today? What do we do mostly in the world? We lock up people. The Torah teaches that we need to repair people, not lock people up. Mm -hmm. It's about reparation. It's about restoration of that soul. Now there's a punishment because now that person becomes a slave. He is now indebted to the master. Now look at this, folks. So if a person stole something and did not have the means to repay, the courts will sell him as a slave, and his purchase price would be used to repay the theft, essentially. You know, if we follow the system, folks, I guarantee you we'll have better results than we have in our society today. Mm -hmm. Really, really amazing. Look, the general law commemorates also another purpose for why six years the sages ask. <clears throat> why does he have to serve for six years and in the seven he goes free? Look what the sages of Israel share. The general law commemorates both the act of creation and the exodus from Egypt. Why the exodus from Egypt? Because remember, according to Hazal, the person, why this person is actually being slow, uh, sold as a slave, it's not because it was an unfortunate situation, but rather he stole. He committed a crime against another person. But look at this. We see an example. The sages actually give an example. It says in here, one reason that the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt was because they stole, they had stolen Joseph. <clears throat> kind of like the Hebrew slave, who is now a Hebrew slave because he stole something. Israel was sold into slavery because they had stolen Joseph and sold him for a slave. The Israelites were sold by God to the Egyptians just as a thief is sold as a slave because of his theft. Amazing. You see, the things that we see that are bound here on heaven and on earth are one and the same. It's a reflection, folks. We can even say, and I'm going to expound, I'm going to even add to this. We can even say that all humanity has been sold into slavery. That's why it takes 6,000 years for the tikkun. For the restoration on the seven year, seven thousand millennium, we go free. You see the connection? It's amazing. This is the reflection of our heavenly father to us. And then we see the blood later applied to the people, which connects us to the Mashiach. Look, this is I don't want to lose you too much. <laughs> but just as God eventually freed us from slavery, right? In Egypt, so must we free the slave that is sold for theft in the same manner. That's why the slave is actually set for free on the seventh year. Six years he served, the seventh he goes free, which is an amazing thing. Look, Isaiah 51 says, Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? With which I sent her away. Or which of my creditors... Is it to whom I have sold you? Now, why would he do that? Because we have transgressed against him. We have committed a crime, you can say, against him. And because of that, we have been sold into slavery, you can say. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, says Isaiah. 
Why was the slave now endeavored to his master for six years? Because of his sin, what he had committed. Look. And for your transgressions, your mother was also sent away. You know, one of the things that the Father is revealing in here, and we can use this mishpatim right in by itself as wisdom and how to apply that even to society, to our children or one another. Six years, six days, six months, whatever case may be, that they have to repay back. And what is the, the major theme in here is what? Restitution. See, it's not, what we got to see, understand is this parasha is opening up with punishment, right? Because there's punishment in here. But in the punishment, there's also restitution. And there's also, what? Repair. The tikkun. So when we punish someone, it always has to be for the purpose of what? Repairing them. That is the first order of business. And it's no coincidence that this parasha opens up with the Hebrew slave. There's so many, there's so many mishpatims in here that have a higher priority than that one. But the father chose that one because it's making us, it's showing us that in our vengeance, if you want to call it, there's got to be mercy. And we're going to see more on that as we go along with this. Look, <clears throat> Jeremiah 34, 13 says, Thus says Hashem, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying what? At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. See, this is one of the first things that Israel neglected was in freeing the slave. Now remember, the slave committed actual crime. So there was actually a crime that was committed and he needed to pay for that crime. What is the Torah teaching us in here? Is that when we commit a crime or we steal from our brothers and sisters, folks, it's not for us to say, oh, it's okay, you're forgiven, move on. That's not righteous judgment. Righteous judgment is, you need to pay for that crime. As a matter of fact, Scripture goes on to say in Leviticus that if we are willing and we are actually happy to pay for our sins, then the Lord will turn around and have mercy upon us. That mindset in itself, folks, is important for us to have and adapt because today we are so used to bad grace. What is bad grace? In Judaism, there's a such thing as bad grace. Bad chesed. You know, we need to extend righteous judgment. If we tell our brother who stole from us, well, you don't have to do anything. Then we're not following the mishpatims. And what's happening is that person is not being repaired now. You are nurturing bad behavior. You are extending bad grace. And instead of you think you're doing him a favor, but you're not doing him a favor. See, this is one of the things that we need to line up with the way he does things. Because imagine if the Father would have done that to us. We would never learn our lesson. We would continue sinning. God, he'll forgive me. And what that translates into, I don't have to pay for anything. How many parents, how many kids do that? Daddy, mommy, I know. I know how to handle them. You know, I give a nice, cute little look, and they'll go forgive me, and I don't have to pay. Next day, I'll be out. 
This is the problem, folks. So the thing that the Father is revealing in this first mishpat is that the crime does need to be paid. But, but, when we are actually convicting or when we're judging our brothers in this crime, per se, it always has to be with the understanding of the tikkun, and that is the repairing. It cannot be, well, he's going to get what's coming to him. And I just want to see him crushed. That's it. No. It has to be, I want to do this because I want him or her to be restored. Amen? So these are the things that the Father is revealing. In the first mishpat, he's revealing his heart and how to apply this for us today. Look, outside of scripture, the epistle of Barnabas shares something very interesting concerning the six days. Or the six, yeah, the six years of service and the seven year free. Look what he says. In the epistle of Barnabas, it says this. My children... Attend to the meaning of this expression. He finished in six days. This implies that the Lord will finish all things in 6,000 years. Because why? For a day with him is a thousand years. That Actually, Peter says that. And he himself testifies saying, Behold, today will be as a thousand years. Therefore, my children, in six days, that is in 6,000 years, all things will be finished. This is amazing. This testifies of what we see. Remember, God is at a much higher level, a much higher scale than we are. And then even the sages of Israel say that the weekly, the, the seven days of creation is prophetic for our life today. So this all connects with the Hebrew slave serving for six years and being free in the seventh year. But in that service of the six years, something has to take place. That's why it says when you buy it, there needs to be restoration. Isn't that what the Father is doing with us today? Even though we are slaves today, He is showing His mercy. He's not saying, well, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to punish you, but I'm going to restore you at the same time. Where, folks, where and how do can we conceive that there's no mercy? There's mercy here. What's one of the say? You said this is the first thing that we see in this parasha is God's mercy. Now, it can be said at the same time, so we can understand this, the Hebrew slave has to serve six years, and in the seventh year, he goes free. Why would Hashem say that? Because in ancient times, they were doing the very opposite. When we have that law, it's because it's revealing something that was taking place at that time. Slaves were being kept forever and never freed. This is why this is so important, to understand Mishpat and his righteous rulings. So now moving on in here, Exodus 21.3 says, If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in Mary, then his wife shall go out with him. Now, right off the bat, I want to kind of explain something that Hazal shares in here that I didn't have the opportunity to write it down. But I think it is very, very important that I want to read to you. And it's concerning this so you can understand what is really being said and understanding why do we have the whole thing of being married. What was the benefit of the marriage in this case? 
because when we read it, it seems kind of cruel to a degree because it's like, okay, he's being forced to be married, whatever case may be. But look what in here the Midrash says, okay? The Midrash says, this passage refers only to a Jewish slave sold by the court to pay victims for his theft, okay? And it is only such a Jewish slave who can be forced to live with a female slave. It may be that the Torah permits this to make the sale more attractive to potential buyers so that he will be able to make restitution, thereby both compensating his victims and enabling him to begin a new life free from death when his period of servitude is over. Moreover, when he goes free, his master is required to give him substantial amount of gifts. We see that in Deuteronomy 15. So that he can start out with a chance of rebuilding his life. As the Hinun explains, all the laws of slaves found in the Sidra and elsewhere are examples of kindness and mercy that the Torah shows and demands of us towards even those who might be regarded as least worthy members of society. Now, the purpose for the whole thing with the female is because, again, it will be more attractive because he will have the female, they will have children, and then the children will be raised into slavery, obviously. So for the master, that's beneficial, and it's also beneficial, again, because then he's worth more in those days. So the idea behind this it was all for the purpose of helping, if you want to say, the Hebrew slave redeem himself. Because he will be worth more. But that's if he came in single, then he was there was an opportunity of the master actually giving him a wife for that purpose. But what if he came married? Say so if he came in married, then his wife shall go out with him. What does that mean that his wife will go in when the Meamloes shares something that I think was very profound and it points to Yeshua? Actually, look what it says. Because we got this understanding that we've been we've been sold to slavery, haven't we? So with that in mind, with that training thought in mind, in the Remes, which is the hint here, let's read this. It says, this indicates that as long as he is a slave, okay, the master must support the slave's wife and children also. This is amazing. Watch, look. If the slave's wife or children earn any money during the period of slavery... That money also belongs to the master. Now, we may be thinking that's unfair. Well, it's not really. Because remember, they are basically trying to pay the theft, the things that they, that they uh, actually stole. And the master did purchase it. So look what it says in here. The money belongs to the master. The reason for this law is that God has mercy on the slave's wife and children. Look. Normally, a man supports his family, right? Therefore, if a man is sold as a slave, his family can quite literally starve to death. Because how he's going to support his family now? The Torah, therefore, mandates that anything that the wife or children earn shall belong to the man's master, which, in turn, obligates the masters to support the slave's family completely, providing them with food, clothing, and shelter. This is mind-blowing to me because today we've been sold into slavery and who is the one that really technically sees to it that we get food, clothing, and shelter? Our master. 
even when we have our families and we are indebted to him and we give our lives to him, which we're going to connect this now because remember, this is for the assumption that you are now indebted to him. So you work for him, solely for him. You're not chasing your dreams. You are working for the master. In turn, the master needs to support you. I'm going to share some scripture concerning what Yeshua said about us because remember, we are his slaves. Look. God does have mercy on the slave's family. So even in this time and period that they're actually paying for the crime, think about this. They're paying for the crime. They're being supported in the process. Because remember, this is all part of the tikkun in Hebrew. When you buy tikneh, the purchase with the understanding of I'm going to repair you, I'm going to make you whole. That's the idea. Look. So it says in here, this is also mercy on the slaves himself. If he had to worry about his family starving to death, he would die of anguish. So this is how amazing this is, that if the slave was actually married, the master would take the wife and the slave and will support that entire family. And in turn, the slave will obviously have to work out his death back to society. You know, folks, if we were to actually implement this with one another, it would be great. But imagine if we implement this at a global level. Think about how much better society would be. Because, you know, usually when criminals come out of jail, they come out worse. Usually. But God's plan is not to, set, it's not to just, okay, well, you don't have to pay for the crime. God's plan is, while you're paying for your crime, I'm also going to build you up as well. So look, Matthew 24, concerning, concerning uh, the master supporting the family while he is serving for his crime. Matthew 24, 45 says this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? <clears throat> Notice that that word here in Greek, servant, literally means a slave. Okay? Who then is a faithful and wise servant who his master has sent over his household to give them their what? Food and their, at their proper time. Why would I say that? Because if you understand Mishpatim, you will know that that is the master's job, to provide the slave with his food. These parables now will start making more sense because you start understanding that Mishpatim. So look, blessed is that servant or slave whom his master will find doing when he comes. When he comes. So again, we, the, uh, in this parable here, Matthew chapter 24, we see a parable here of us being the slave and the master has gone, right? And now we are entrusted over his household. And he is providing what? Our daily food at his proper time as well. Just like the slave in Exodus chapter 21 when he had his family, and even if he didn't, even if he didn't have the family, the master still was entrusted to take care of his clothing, his food, and his shelter. So look, 2 Corinthians 9.9 9 says, As it is written, he has distributedly freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures what? Forever. You see, in this first commandment of Mishpatim, we're starting to reveal the heart of God and how he handles restoration. How he handles when there is a crime committed against one another. Why is that important for us today? Because we need to follow that same principle, folks. And I promise you, if we follow that principle, we will see results. 
uh, lots of results just on this because when we follow this principle, we follow it because we understand that it reveals the Messiah. Mm -hmm. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Who is the one that supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food? The master. Amen. Okay, moving on in here. Exodus 21, 5 and 6. Now, this is what is going to take place where now the servant is serving the master. We understand that this serving has a lot to do with, again, going back to him committing the crime. And now this master is helping him by purchasing him, right? Taking care of him and making sure that he obviously was able to meet his debt so that he can pay his debt to society. Now, what happens when the end of the six years come? This is what it gets really good. It says, and if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. This is really, really amazing. Look, then his master shall bring him into the judges, and he shall also bring him into the door and into the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an all, and he shall serve him forever, it says. Now, the way this recent Hebrew is very amazing, more revelation in the Hebrew text than there actually is in the English text. The question is since then here, and that is, if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. The question of the master and the children is where the text comes in, and it gives deeper revelation. It says in Hebrew, Ve'im omer yomer. That is actually twice he's saying it. If the master says same, that's literally how it reads. So he's confirming this. He is 100% sure. So it says, That is the Hebrew, the, the, yeah, the Evet, the servant, the slave, loves his master. What is the master? Et Adoni. Mm. The master is the Aleph Tav. How about the children? Et Ishti. I mean the wife. You got an Aleph Tav connected to the Ishti. Ve'et Banav. The children. Lo etse hafshi. He will not go out in liberty, he says. So let's look at this because this is very, very interesting. In the Hebrew text, this master actually connects to the Aleph Tav. Now, we have talked about this for a very, very long time about this Aleph Tav and how the Hazat teaches that the Aleph Tav is the point to the divine, right? And that Yeshua expounded that in the Gospels. He said, I am the Aleph Tav, the beginning and the end. And the sages say, well, this, this thing points to something divine, like a definite article or something that's divine. So we see that there's a messianic, a good possibly messianic teaching of why the master slave does not want to go off free from his master. I want to share something with you in here. In the Orhaim, okay? The Orhaim span, I'm sorry, because this last night I was studying more and... <clears throat> the Father just gives more, and I didn't have time to put all this in PowerPoint. So I'm going to read it. But the Orhaim explains something very amazing.
that connects to this Aleph Ta, so I don't want you guys to think that I'm making up my own teaching here as I go along. Come in agreement with the Hazal and the, the sages of Israel. Look, it says in here, Hazal says, regarding what the Torah says, but if the servant shall say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, right? Here, the Torah tells us about the service of a Jewish servant of Hashem, who is passionate about serving his creator. Number one, that comes in agreement with what Hazal is talking about, that the master is the Aleph Taf. Hashem himself. Look, let's see more in here. It says, uh, servant of Hashem who is passionate about serving his creator, that he still has a desire to serve the master even after his physical strength has been sat. And it is time for him to leave this world. This is what the verse alludes to when it says that the servant declares at the end of his term, I love my master, i.e. Hashem. The sages are saying that the master really is Hashem. Okay? My wife and my children. With the wife and children referring to the soul, my wife. And the mitzvot, the commandments that he performed in this world, his children. Because actually there's proof of this in the written word. The Proverbs talks about a wife and the children. The, 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 um, the reward for the righteous is children, the seed that is actually righteous, connects to the mitzvah. Look. So it says in here, I love my master Hashem, my wife, my children, with wife and children referred to the soul, and the mitzvah he performed the world, his children, as it explained previously. And because of this love, the servant goes on to declare, I shall not go free, meaning he does not want to leave this world to be free from the commandments like the dead ones. This is amazing. He does not want to leave this world and be free from the commandments. But look, it gets better. This is the you get this is a remiss. But this is really, really amazing what they see in here. Look. This demonstrates a yearning and desire for closeness to the master. Okay? Now remember, folks, this man committed a crime. So this master is somewhat a savior for him. Think about it. Because if it wasn't for the master, then he would still be indebted to society. Mm -hmm. How about us being indebted mm -hmm. to the sin and death? The price that we owe. Mm -hmm. You get it. Some of you are like, wow, I get it now. That's good. <laughs> because this is the whole purpose. Look, let me share a little bit more and then we'll move on. So as that says, this demonstrates a yearning and desire for closeness to the master... To such a person, the master promises that he will be given the title Servant of Hashem. This is amazing. I, I just, I'm reading this at midnight last night. Okay? And now about falling out of my sleep. I couldn't even go to sleep because I was so excited reading this. Look, it says, um, so, uh, to such a person, the, uh, the master promises that he will be given the title of servant Hashem, thereby having his wishes fulfilled, as it says in Psalms 21.3, you have granted him the heart's desire. But this will not occur now in this world, for this time in this world has come to an end. Rather, as the Torah goes on to say, he shall serve his master forever. What does that mean? To serve his master forever. That is, in this world... To come when Hashem will choose him over the angels to be for him a faithful servant. 
come when Hashem will choose him to be again over the angels. Indeed, we find that this is what happened to Moses, whom Hashem called in, in Deuteronomy 34, 5, a servant of Hashem, even after he died. This is amazing. Because he yearned to continue living so that he could enter into Eretz Israel and serve <coughs> Hashem and fulfill his mitzvah. We read that in Sotah. <coughs> The idea, folks, is that we serve the master now, today, and when we die, we continue to serve him forever. Amen. That's the idea. This was Moshe wanted to do. This is exactly what Abraham dreamed of, of the city built by Hashem himself, and to continue to serve Hashem with all his heart, with all his mind, and all his resources. Amen? Amen. So in here, we got this clear that this is referring in the Midrash about the Messianic age and us being servants today and we serve him. And guess what? What does Romans says? This whole idea that it says that the servant will go free, folks, the scripture says that there's no such thing as that freedom. Because our conception of freedom today is we do what we want. But in the Bible, either you're serving sin or you're serving righteousness. So we can even conclude, I will submit to you today in Midrash, this is my Midrash now, I will conclude to you that at the end of the six years, the servant had a choice to either serve righteousness or be free from righteousness. Think about it. And what he chooses, at the end he says, I choose to be with my master. I don't want to be free from righteousness. How many, how about you? How many of you want to be free from righteousness? Because if you're free from righteousness, that means that you're back to being what? A servant of sin. Yeah. Look. Let's move on in here. It says, Behigesh Yosh, right? That is, he sent out Adonai and Ha Elohim. So he is to go out, his master, to the judges. Now listen to this. In Hebrew, it says, El Ha Elohim. <laughs> the translation in here, it doesn't say Shofti. Shoftim is a judge. But it says that the master needed to take the servant to God, Elohim. What is that all about? Well, the sages of Israel, and this is very well understood in Judaism, that Elohim is a generic title that can also mean the courtroom. In other words, the judges, the magistrates. So it's very befitting. Why, however... Why would the sages say this? I'm going to expound and hear this now real quick. The whole concept with Elohim shares something that Hazal expounds on. It says the court is called Elohim. Why is the court called Elohim? A word that also means God because the court carry, carries out God's law on earth. And because God's presence and influence rests upon the judges. See, folks, one of the things that we need to understand, it doesn't matter whether you got a righteous judge or not, when we go by the legal system, how many times God used a wicked judge to favor Israel in the Bible? Lots of times. Because remember, the courthouse that's set in here, it is bound also in heaven. That's why it's so important to do things legally. You see, they went, it says that they took, the master took him to El Elohim, that is the judges. Because they were carrying out, they were carrying out God's sentence. So they have that title of God. 
What does that also teaches us, folks, that God is not his name. It's a title. That's it. For even the judges in here are actually known as Elohim. Yeshua said, you have heard and it is said that you are gods. He's not saying that you're divine. He's saying that you also are judges. That's the idea. Israel's supposed to be a nation of righteous judges. Hopefully that'll make more sense when you read that. It's not a stumbling block for you when he says you are gods. Unfortunately, religion has taken that to think that we are divine. But that's not what it's saying. Because again, a, a general title, a, a generic title. Elohim is a generic title. So what happens? If he wanted that, then he would have to go. His master would take him to the judges. And it makes sense that he would take him to the judges. Because remember, it is the courtroom that sold him to the master. So it makes sense that they will go back to the courtroom to assess this. So it says, Behigeshon el Hadelet, and that is the door, or el Hamezuzah. What is the Mezuzah, folks? When you walked into the door today, if you notice there was a little piece of wood there. That is a Mezuzah. And what's inside the Mezuzah? The Torah. That's the idea. The Torah scroll. Think about this. this. This servant now, this slave, has to go to the door or to the mezuzah, and it says, Adonai et asno. Okay? Et asno. What is asno? Asno is from azam. What is azam? To hear. The ear. What is connecting in here is that you got to see the connection. The servant, the slave now goes to the mezuzah. What was in Passover? What was the blood applied? And the doorpost where the mezuzah would be. The word is where? In the doorpost. Look, this is amazingly beautiful. Says a mezuzot, so now this Aleph Tav is connected with the mezuzot. That means that he's going to what? He's going to Banishma. What? Shema. He's going to now hear and obey the master. <laughs> Look. Et asno, right? Bamaratze va'advado le'olam. Forever and ever. Let me share something with you. In Shadows of Messiah, Volume 2, look what they say about this verse right here. We just read in Hebrew. The slave who says, I love my master, I will not go out, enters lifelong service beneath the mezuzah on which are written the words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is Deuteronomy 6.5. His master shall pierce his ear with an awl so that he will not turn away from hearing the words of the Torah. Is amazing. That's why we read in the Hebrew that the master, the children, and the wife connect to the olive top. You see? This is amazing. Because there's such a connection here with the Mashiach and us today as being servants of him. At the end of the age, we're going to have to decide whether we want to continue serving him or not. I submit we already did that. When we went into the doorpost, the mezuzah on Passover, and the blood was shed of the Mashiach, there we partook of that blood. That's why I'm going to recall it before we end the teaching now. That's why they said what they said. Look, and we're going to connect this now. 
So it says in here that this is for the purpose of hearing the words of the Torah. Look, Rabino Ephraim from Yalchut Moshiach says this. Look, the slave, the slave plainly slave stays in this world. I love my master, so I engage in the Torah from my love of the Holy One. Blessed be he. And I love my wife. That is to say, I love the Torah. And I love my children. That is to say, I love my disciples. I will not depart from my master even in the grave. Thus, the rabbis of blessed memory said that the disciples of the sages do not rest. Why? Because they serve God forever. No rest in this world, folks. No rest in this world. We serve Hashem day and night. Even in the world to come, as it says in Psalms 84, 7, they go from strength to strength. As we serve Hashem now, we will serve Him in the world to come. That connects with the mishpatims of the slave who refuses to leave his master. Because he sees the love of the master for him. Amen? Look, Romans 6, 15, 16 says, What then? Are we to sin because we are under the law? I mean, because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. See, this makes sense because P Apostle Paul Rashaul is speaking here in Midrash term. He's saying in here exactly and going back to the laws of slaves. Who you present yourself. If you're going to obey sin, then that is your master. If you're going to obey righteousness, that will be your master. So he says in here, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to what? Righteousness. 2 Peter 2.19 says they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of what? Corruption. For whatever over... Listen to this. Very important. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes you, that is your master. But on the same note, the Torah says, in Genesis that we can overcome sin. Mm -hmm. So if that is overcoming you, it's because that is your master. Now we have to go to the Mishpatim of the slave to understand how can we get out of this mess? Mm -hmm. By serving the master of all. Mm -hmm. That means, you know what this all really comes down to? Crazy. Obey. Mm -hmm. Obey. Obey. <laughs> Simply put, obey. Because that is the master that you serve. Look. Romans 6.22. I'm going to end with this. But now that you have been set free from what? Sin. Remember at the end of the seven years, what will happen? You will be set free. Right? But look what it says in here. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. That's what this right here, Romans 6.22, it's a major connection with Exodus 21 and the slave. Because out of the end of the six years, going into the seven, he was free. He had a choice who he was going to serve. And here, Rav Shaul, being a rabbi, and understanding this, he says, you have become slaves of God. Why? Because you, will be you have been set free from sin. What does that mean? You either serve in sin or you serving God. 
There's no in between. See, our, our American mindset thinks that freedom is, oh, well, I don't want to be here, but I don't want to be there. I just want to do what I want to do. No, you're serving sin. You already chose what path you're going. It's a really, really false sense of security. You're serving one or the other, folks. This is the loss of slavery that we can understand. Look. But look at what it says in here. It says in here, i got to read it from the beginning. But now if you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification. And it's in eternal life. That means that the new master, when you went to the dark poles in the mezuzah, right? And you declare that I want to serve my master, no matter what. I want to remain a slave to him, okay? That means that you partook of being a slave to God, as Hassab teaches. Which means, what does that mean? Because everybody says that they serve God. Everybody says that. You will never find a person that says, I don't serve God. Most people will say, I serve God. But what does that mean? A part of Rashaul in here, it means that your service to God should be leading to what? Sanctification. What is sanctification, folks? Holiness. Holiness. What is holiness? Kadosh. What is Kadosh? Set apart. How do you become set apart? His word is set apart. We follow the word that is set apart so that that can make us set apart and we will remain slaves to our master who is supporting us, who is gracious with us, and it's actually fulfilling the tikkun, that is the restoration and the repairness that we need. We have all been broken. True? Amen. All of us have been broken. We need restoration. So that means that we need to serve the master who is going to tikkun, who's going to restore us. And in doing that, folks, we will have eternal life. Amen?
I'm only going to touch on the heart of our service. Um, and before we begin, I want to talk a little bit about Zedekiah, so we can kind of understand what kind of a man he was, the position that he was in, what ultimately led to his decisions, and are we making these same choices in our own lives. Um, Zedekiah was one of the last kings to rule over the nation of Judah, you know, after Judah and Israel were separated, um, before Babylon came, conquered them, and drug them off to this forum. Um, what's very interesting about this is that when Nebuchadnezzar was marching on Judea, um, Zedekiah actually forged an alliance with him and paid him a tribute. So it kind of paid him off, sort of, to spare his own neck. Mm -hmm. And because he did that, Nebuchadnezzar figured, hey, I've got a faithful servant in this city. I'm going to make you king. So he actually set Zedekiah up as a king over his nephew, which is really incredible. He ascended the throne in a day. And it wasn't even his to have. But what's even more interesting is that after he kind of bribed King Nebuchadnezzar, you could sort of say, as soon as Nebuchadnezzar you know, set up the terms of his service, said, okay, you're going to pay me a tribute every year until, you know, whatever, and you'll be my servant. And, you know, part of that tribute is that they get protection from Babylon. Mm -hmm. he, he wasn't just left out on his own. It wasn't like he was going to be unprotected. You know, he kind of forged a covenant, kind of like how we forge a covenant with Hashem. He forged a covenant with this king <coughs> on earth. And as soon as that king left the city, <coughs> was far enough away that he felt comfortable, he sent a messenger to Egypt, who was the sworn enemy of Nebuchadnezzar, and forged an alliance with him also. <laughs> This isn't going to go well for uh, Zedekiah, um, as we find out later, and also with ourselves. We can't serve sin, and we can't serve righteousness. We can't serve two masters. It's either one or the other. And if we remember, in, you know, if anybody's read Jeremiah, the chapter before this, Hashem warns that Babylon's coming to judge Judah for a reason, because they were not content with obeying his commandments. And so that was their punishment. And he told them that if you are willing to accept this punishment and serve Nebuchadnezzar for X amount of years, then I will set you free, just like I did in Egypt, I will set you free, and we'll call that debt paid off. Well, as we see with Zedekiah's actions, they were not content with paying their due, just like with the slave. What would happen if the slave wasn't content with paying for his service? Not good things. So, <clears throat> continuing forward with Zedekiah's little story. So, now he's trying to play both sides of the table. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is going to hear about it. Um, and so he decides he's going to turn his army around. And this time he's going to crush Zedekiah because he's had it up to here with this man. He knows what he's about. He's not going to pull, you know, listen to his nonsense anymore. Well, another messenger comes and tells Nebuchadnezzar, you know what? You besieged Judah. You're down on men. You're not going to be able to conquer Judah and Egypt. Because guess what? Egypt's sending up a huge army to back them up. So he says, okay, I'll turn around. I'll come back. Mm -hmm. And he goes right back to Babylon for reinforcements. Mm -hmm. And it's during this kind of turbulent period that this prophecy was actually given to Zedekiah by Jeremiah from the Lord. And the Lord, <clears throat> as we know, he wants, a, us, he wants our service. And he wants us to be willing to pay our debt. We're not willing to pay our debts. <laughs> well, he's going to have to deal with this with a heavy hand, and that's really unfortunate. Um, so in this prophecy, he, he tells his servants, listen, this is going to be your last chance. 
I will, you know, kind of relent to this judgment if you agree to do the one thing you have, well, not one thing, they've done a lot of things, but if you agree to do this one thing for me, set your slaves free. You haven't done that since you guys entered the land, you haven't been treating your slaves well, release them. They figured, well, you know what, King Nebuchadnezzar is probably going to come back. He, we just sent that message, you know, out to the Egyptian pharaoh. And so they agreed, yeah, let's go ahead and release our slaves because we're going to get punished. But guess what happened as soon as Nebuchadnezzar turned around and that punishment was apparently lifted? They went and drug all those people back and pressed them into harder service than what they had before. God has a problem with this. And remember also with the Torah portion where it says that if we refrain from righteousness and doing justice and the people that we are hurting essentially cry out to Hashem, who's he going to hear? He's going to hear the cry of the people who are being treated unjustly. And what happens when he hears them crying out to him about how we're not treating them right? He's going to come down like dad, pull off his belt, and we're going to be hurting. <laughs> and we deserve it. <laughs> so it says right here in Jeremiah 34, 11, and he's explaining to them, he's bringing this charge to them, he says, but afterward they turned around and took back their male and female slaves that they had set free and brought them into subjugation as slaves. This is a very similar attitude that we actually see happen not too long ago in Israel's history, way back when they were in Egypt. Remember the Pharaoh? Whenever the Pharaoh <laughs> was under attack, had the plagues, had something afflicting him, he was crying, he was on his knees, please forgive me, I'll let your people go. And as soon as Moses prayed and the plague was lifted, suddenly, oh no, you don't, you don't tell me what to do. And he doubled down on doing exactly what the Lord told him not to do. Um, and he recounts this back to the Israelites to kind of remind them, listen, you're acting like Pharaoh. And if you act like Pharaoh, you're going to suffer like Pharaoh. <laughs> if you behave wickedly, you're going to be treated like a wicked person. Do what's good. Take this opportunity to repent. They weren't having it. So the Lord says to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me, nor did they incline your ears to me. And you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And then you made this covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. So they actually said it not only in Judah, but they went before the priests and made a covenant. You know, the all piercing? Yeah, let's see what happens when that covenant gets broken later on. So, he says, but then you turned around and profaned my name. How did we profane his name? By turning our backs on, our, our, on his, the covenant that we made with him. That's right. When each of you took back his male and female slave, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjugation to be your slaves. And it would seem then that just like with Pharaoh, that when they are in fear of judgment, they desire only then to do what is right. And to follow Hashem. But when times are good, or when they see that judgment was lifted, they go right back to doing evil. In fact, they're willing to do more evil than before, which is not unlike the parable that Yeshua spoke to his disciples in Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Remember the, the unforgiving servant? Mm -hmm. I'm going to read it to you in case you, know, you might have forgotten. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may have been compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children on all that he had so that payment could be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience on me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him only a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him too, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly displeased. So they went and reported it to their master, all that they had taken place. Remember the prayers of the righteous? Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I also had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Isn't this what we see happening exactly verbatim with Jeremiah? The people suddenly forgot the mercy that Hashem had given them when they were following his word. And don't, like I keep saying, they were twice, they went back and did twice the sins as before. Not only did they refuse to hear the word of the Lord, they went completely contrary to it. We can't be servants of two masters. I'm going to keep saying that because we are called to be holy to Hashem. And him alone do we serve. We can't serve sin if we are claiming to righteousness. It doesn't add up. So, continuing forward. In the same way, aren't we also taught to transgress the law? Or that transgression of the law is mercy? Haven't we been taught that before in our past? It's not the case. If it was merciful, why would Hashem have such a problem with people going back on the word? He has a problem with it. Therefore, it's not mercy if we transgress. But Hashem, the God of creation who created our souls and who is master of all things, isn't coming into agreement with our human wisdom. Why is that? Well, as we're going to see later on in this teaching, and in last week's portion, and again in this week's Torah portion, the Torah was given as mercy. It was given as a warning to, to the people, as a boundary to keep us safe, and to teach us how to love one another. But when we transgress the law, or repent from even doing what is right, like the people in Jeremiah when he's addressing these people, we leave the safety of our boundaries, and we're now able to be consumed with judgment. We're basically walking out of that hedge of protection and willing to accept, basically, the wrath of God. I don't want to see any of us go through that. No one can withstand him. Even the demons tremble at the sound of his name. So in essence, when we do this, when we leave the boundaries and the confines of our covenant that we made with Hashem, and we abandon our service, we essentially curse ourselves. And because we've convinced ourselves that it was the right thing to do, Hashem is <laughs> hes going to have to correct us. And unfortunately for those being corrected, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. The, the rod and the staff, they're there as a guiding tool, but they're also there for discipline. And when he disciplines, it really crushes us. So it benefits us to take the mercy that he's given us and learn from it and learn from those who have been practiced in this to see how we should walk, to avoid that judgment. Um, Hashem has many beautiful promises for his people and for those who are not looking for the loopholes or who are not putting on the piety mask so other people don't have to see how truly rotten they are. 
For the faithful, our promise is to inherit everlasting life and to be able to sit in the presence of Hashem, just like the children of Israel had that honor when they were at the bottom of Mount Sinai. But if we willfully transgress and despise doing the righteous judgments, which we just learned of the Mishpatims, and loathe following the Lord's righteous teachings, which is you know, a group together called the Torah, we will only have the same freedom that he promised to rebellious Judah, which is here in 34, 17 to 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty to everyone his brother and to his neighbor. So behold, I will proclaim liberty to you, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant, who did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like a calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them to the hand of their enemies and to the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be for food of the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds like a horrible promise. I think it's a lot easier to be obedient to the word and to maintain our covenant and our contract with love and knowing that that is our service. And it's very simple. It's a very simple service to be obedient, just like with children. It's simple to be obedient to your parents. When they say no cookies, you don't go reaching for the cookie jar. It's simple. You're not going to get smacked <laughs> if you're not reaching for the cookie jar. But as soon as you eat all the cookies and then wipe chocolate all over the wall, maybe hide some under your pillow and your mom and dad find out, yeah, you're going to get grounded. That's, that's what happens. So why are we expecting less from God? The wicked have no part in the congregation of the Church of the Righteous. This is something we need to remember. And why we need to practice on getting our hearts straight now. The willful evildoers have no inheritance in the kingdom, which is our promise. Which is why repentance from these things, again, it is so important. <coughs> the kingdom that Hashem has for us is intended only for the humble and the meek. And his mercy is reserved only for the righteous. Yes. And his love is only for the people whom he's going to call his bride, which is Israel. If we want to be a part of his kingdom, then we need to act on that desire and strive to follow his word, even when it doesn't make sense, or even when we feel that a judgment was made in error. Why? Because Hashem, he's the one who makes these judgments, and he is not ever in error. If we don't agree with his words, one of two things. We're either lacking in wisdom, or we're trying to apply the word in a way that only benefits us, or we're simply lacking the heart to follow him. This is why this portion was given, for us to discern and decide for ourselves, is this service worth it? And it is. We just have to see the promise and see that it is worth it, that our lives are valuable. Our actions will ultimately condemn us or set us free in the end. We need to take heart and start living our life as if the king is coming tomorrow, or otherwise, just like these poor people in Jeremiah, and later on in the time to come, we're going to get caught off guard. We don't want to be like the people that were under the hand of Zedekiah when Nebuchadnezzar showed up. No. We don't want to see that. <laughs> His promise wasn't good. And ultimately, we need to remember that Hashem is coming, and he is only delaying for a season. He promised he would return, and that season is ending, and that is our hope. Yeah. The righteous judgments, the, uh, the rules by which God's people live their lives and interact with each other. So basically, it's uh, how do you love your neighbor? This kind of really tells you the best way to interact with each other without 
overstepping your bounds and also what can you even expect from them? <clears throat> but now the question is, do these apply to us today? Because the Messiah is coming and a lot of people say when he came, then we don't need to do that stuff anymore. But it's getting a very important part of the Messiah. The prophecy of the Messiah is when he was to come, he was supposed to come in the likeness of Moses. He was supposed to bring with him these righteous judgments. So we see prophecies like this one here in Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. That's the Messiah. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The word for justice is mishpat, which is where you use the word mishpatim. So he is going to execute the mishpatim in the land when he comes. <clears throat> this is what the Messiah is going to do. And when you read through uh, the New Covenant teachings, you see that Messiah is actually using the mishpatims quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people just kind of miss it because they're not too familiar with the mishpatim, so they don't... They don't recognize the phrases, but they're in there. They're all over the place. And today we're going to be covering uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is part of the Mishpatim here in Matthew 5.38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this right here has been taken way out of context. <clears throat> because, but before we get into that, what, it, what he is doing here... An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is a mishpatim. And what the Messiah is doing is he's going to interpret this for the people because he's standing up on the Sermon on the Mount right now and he's interpreting a lot of the people. Well, his interpretation of this is do not resist one who is evil. But what does that mean? Uh, that word resist is kind of ambiguous. It can really mean a lot of different things. You know, it could mean, you know, you're sitting or laying on the ground some guy's beating your face in, and every time he hits you, you hit him there too. You know, that's one interpretation a lot of people take, but it doesn't really come to agreement with Scripture. And that word resist is really ambiguous. What if you had a really big dinner and you're full, and somebody comes and offers you a grilled cheese sandwich, and you say, no, I don't want it. Did you just resist that person? <laughs> Did you just break that interpretation? I mean, resist could be about anything. It's really ambiguous. <clears throat> so later on, we're going to show you a different, uh, uh, we're going to really show you what that word means. But right now, I'm going to show you that the common interpretation of being absolutely passive in every situation is not the correct interpretation. We'll see right here in Galatians 2.11. This is Apostle Paul talking about Peter. And when Kepha, who is Peter, had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was at fault. Apostle Paul was resisting Peter. It was okay. Apostle Paul was in a position to do this. Also, here's another example. Luke 22.36. This is the Messiah speaking to his disciples. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay, so if the Messiah, when he says do not resist an evil per person, meant to never defend yourself ever, 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 never, why do you tell them to buy a sword? What do you do with a sword? You defend yourself to the death because they're trying to kill you. So, <clears throat> that's obviously not what the Messiah meant by do not resist an evil person. So, if we want to understand what did he mean, well, we're going to have to look at this whole thing in context. So, now, he just didn't say an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, don't resist an evil person, and he walked on and didn't say anything else. He said it in a whole stream of, of thought that he was speaking right here and giving to the people. So, if we want to understand what he's talking about, we're going to have to understand this context. 
a few verses before he makes this interpretation of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he says this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so what's this abolishing and fulfilling? This is a common idiom from the first century. When someone was standing up to give an interpretation of the law, and everybody disagreed with him, they're like, you're nullifying the Torah, which is the same as abolishing, because everybody feels like your interpretation is making everything contradict itself. It doesn't make any sense. So, in effect, a bad interpretation of the Torah was the same as abolishing it. Right? But if somebody, that same person, was giving a good interpretation of the Torah, the people would say, you are fulfilling the Torah. You are making it stand. And this is the phrase that the Messiah is using right here because where is he? The first century. So this is the kind of phrase people would understand. Then he goes on and confirms it by saying, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, you know, nothing will pass from the law. So he's saying, I've come to give you a good interpretation. Amen. I'm going to make the law stand. So how do we know that this is really what he meant? Well, obviously context. We're right here in Matthew 5, 17, 18, right? So, what does he do immediately after this? Well, he goes into interpreting the law. We see right here in Matthew 5, 21, it three verses later, he interprets the commandments, you shall not murder, which is in Exodus 20, 13. So he says, I have come to give the law its proper interpretation, and then he immediately interprets the law. I mean, it's common sense here. And then, but that's not all he did, he kept going. And then he interpreted, you shall not commit adultery, which is in Exodus 20.14. And then he interpreted, you shall not swear falsely, which is in Leviticus 19.12. Then he interpreted, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is what we're covering today, which is a commandment from Exodus 21.24. He is interpreting the law. There's no way around it. This is what he's doing. So, <clears throat> if we want to be on the same page as him to understand his interpretation, we need to understand this law. What is this law? Because if somebody gives you an answer to a question and you don't know what the question is, it's kind of useless. Imagine if you're walking down the street and some guy grabs you, the answer's blue! <laughs> that means nothing to you. you know, what, what, the bird's blue? What, your face is blue? <laughs> you don't know, if you don't know the answer, to the, if you don't know the question, the answer's worthless. So let's find out what the question is. So we're gonna go to the commandment, an eye for an eye for tooth for tooth, Exodus 21, 24. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for burn for burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. This is the commandment. What does it mean? When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go for free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of his tooth. So, if a master strikes his servant and his tooth falls out, do you, do you strike the master to knock out his tooth? <laughs> no. That's not what the commandment means. What it's talking about here is equal compensation. That's right. So, <clears throat> if the <coughs> slave loses a tooth, well, that's pretty valuable to the person. It's equal to his freedom. It's equal to the years left that he had to serve. Right. So you're getting equal compensation. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is really meaning if somebody causes somebody else harm, either physically or financially, they are to compensate that person an equal amount. Right. It's kind of like, you know, if your neighbor, you know, hits, uh, hits something, he's being reckless and he breaks your window. 
You know, you, you don't go to the law and say, oh, let's go break his. That doesn't do you any good. The neighbor replaces your window. Going around breaking everybody's windows, you know, you're going to end up with no windows in the place. So, re repair. It's all about restoration. It's all about building up. It's not about tearing down. So this is what the commandment is. And before we go any further, let, let's point out some, some interesting things right here. The mishpatim, these are the judgments. Now, we are supposed to judge ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes it does go to court. And these are the judgments that are ruled in a court. <coughs> so, if, let's say, the master strikes the slave in the tooth. Everything's all said and done. The slave is like, you know what? The law says if I lose my tooth, I get to go set free. So the slave goes to the court. And he tells the court, he knocked out my tooth. I get to go free. And the court's like, yes, let's summon the master. So who is the defendant in the court case? The master is the defendant in the court case. The slave who had his tooth knocked out is the accuser. Because in the court, he is saying, he knocked out my tooth. That is the accusation. Right? So the person who got struck is the accuser, and the person who struck is the defendant. This is the terminology here. So now we're going to remember this, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. The person who got struck is the accuser. <clears throat> so now we're going to look at this translation again. We're not going to use the, use the translation that says you shall not resist an evil person, because that's, that word is just way too ambiguous. In the Bible and basic English, they got a lot closer to the mark here. So we'll go back to our commandment here. Do you have knowledge that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth? But I say to you, do not make use of force against an evil man. But to him who gives you a blow on the right side of your face, let, it, <clears throat> let the left be turned. Okay, so resisting and using force against are two different things. Resisting is you're kind of like this. Using force against is you're kind of like this. <laughs> Completely different context. So, now he's using the eye for an eye, right? So, he's talking about here, somebody has wronged someone. So, now, all after the fact, the violence is done, everything's done. Now, it goes to court. <coughs> so, the person who is wronged is now the accuser. And the person who did the wronging, the person who hit the person, is now the defendant. So, who is the defendant in this case? The evil man. Because he is the one who struck the person in this context. The you, in this context, is the one who was, who was struck, and the one who struck the person was the evil man. So the evil man is the defendant in this court case. So how do we know that this is a court case? Well, as we go on back, he's giving mishpatim. He's giving righteous judgments. And the eye for an eye is a righteous judgment. So all the verses preceding this is righteous judgments, which you would find in a court case. And also the verses after it. If any man goes to law with you and takes away your coat, do not keep back your robe from another court case going to law. So if everything before it and everything after it is concerning law, well, it only makes sense that this one little piece right in the middle of it all is also concerning law. Okay? So let's use that word use of force against. What kind of force? Well, let's look at it. It is the uh, Greek word G436, and it is antihistamine. And it means to set oneself against, to withstand, resist, to oppose, to set against. That's coming against someone. But in what sense? Well, it has a root word, histone, in G2476. Wow. It is to cause, to make, to stand, to place, to put, to set, to bid, to stand, in the presence of others, in the midst, before judges, before the members of the Sanhedrin. So the whole context of this thing is he's saying if 
even though the law says, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, yes, righteous compensation does need to be made. There's no way around it. But he's saying, don't be so quick, even though you have the right to, don't be so quick to just come and take him to the court to bring the full force of the law down on this person. Mm -hmm. But he says, you know, have mercy on him. Because even as the victim, you can have mercy. Because now the court's on your side. You could take him to court. And you could bring him down to every last penny. And you could send him to you know, his full compensation. But he's saying, don't be so quick to do that. So this is what he's saying right here. But what does that mean? Does this mean that we still cannot defend ourselves? What if our neighbor breaks our window? Does that mean, oh, here, break my other window. Oh. No, it does not mean that. Because compensation still needs to be made. This is the way it works. You know, like in the, in the Torah, you know, if a, if a person is killed in violence, you know, compensation needs to be made throughout the Torah. Otherwise, curses go on down on the land, things go bad. Compensation still needs to be made. So if he's saying, don't be so quick to take him to the court, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's keep reading. We'll go to what Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So the Messiah is saying, don't practice righteousness. He's not saying, don't enforce righteousness. Righteousness still needs to be done. He's just saying, you know, if, if your neighbor looks at you funny, don't, don't go call your lawyer and have him drug and handcuffed to the courtroom. Go work it out with him first. See right here, and he says, you know, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? If you know the law, and he knows the law, work together to make an agreement first. So he's not saying just don't sit there and accept, you know. If somebody does evil to you, don't sit there and encourage them. You're, all you're going to do is encourage them to do more evil. If somebody breaks your windows in your house and you say, oh, it's okay, he's going to break more windows. Nobody's learning anything. You're suffering. And it's just going to lead him to do more and more evil over time. Compensation does need to be made. So, how do we go about this instead of just going straight to the full force of the law and trying to drag our neighbor off to the off in handcuffs to the courtroom? You know, because if you're in a courtroom, chances are this is either a coworker, your neighbor, or your brother and sister. These are the people around you. These are not some enemy in some foreign country. These are your brothers and sisters. Which means your first course of action is to not call the cops and have them drug off by force by a SWAT team. You know, just because they looked at you funny or they said something you disagreed with. Because that's something that we do all too often this, you know, in this day and age. You know, somebody says something you disagree with, and all of a sudden, you know, you want to see them hanged, you know, spiritually or whatever. So, what is the proper order so that righteousness is done? Well, back to the Messiah. How does he rule? We'll go to Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so the Messiah is the same one who says do not resist an evil person, right? He's the same one who's putting this order up, this action of order. The Messiah is saying that if somebody does wrong to you, compensation does need to be made. That's what he's saying right here. <clears throat> but what's the first order of action when somebody, let's say, does something bad to you? What's the first order of action? Do 
cops and have them slapped in handcuffs and thrown in prison? No. The first order of action is you go between you and him and you try to work something out. Because if you know the mishpatims and somebody breaks your window, well, what's the mishpatim? An eye for an eye, for tooth for tooth. He replaces your window, right? So you go to your neighbor and say, you broke my window. Let's work this out. And if your neighbor says, okay, I'll replace your window, you guys just worked out a righteous judgment. Right. Compensation was made. Right. This, is, this is the first step. But what if your neighbor says, I don't, I don't know yet, you shouldn't have put that window on my side of the house. <laughs> okay, well, now you're in the right and he's in the wrong at this point. So what's the next step? You go to law yet. No, there's one more step. You get credible witnesses to come and say, hey, the law does say equal compensation, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. At this point, he could agree with you and replace the window. Righteousness is done. Compensation is made. Or he could still refuse. And then you take it to the people who are established, the appointed judges in your community. And at that point, then they really come down. At this point, the judgment's made. Now this is an official judgment. And the Torah says that when you take it up to the judges and they make a ruling, you need to listen to them. But if you don't listen, well, then you are to be cut off. And that's what happens if you don't listen at this point. Either righteous judgment is dealt with properly, or the person who is refusing to accept righteous judgment is literally cut off. You know, like Apostle Paul says, you know, hand them over to Satan so that their soul may be saved. You know, it's kind of what's going on here. If they won't refuse to listen, don't let them continue in their sin and encourage them to do it, because then you're just encouraging evil. You don't want to do that. Compensation needs to be made, not only for the person who is harmed, but for the person who does the harming. Everybody grows in this whole thing. We're all building each other up. Right. You know, because even as a victim, you can have mercy on the person next to you. Like right here in this order. How many times was this person given an opportunity to repent and do righteousness? Lots of times. Just like the Lord is giving us opportunities to repent and do righteousness. When we wrong our brothers and sisters, or we're just out doing some sorts of lawlessness... He sends witnesses to say, hey, don't do this. Repent. Do the right thing. This is the same mercy that he gives us. So we need to give that same mercy to our brothers and sisters, is what the Messiah is saying right here. You know, because with the measure that you use will be used against you. If your first measure is to condemn the person and send him off to you know, slavery for his first little infraction, well, then that's probably going to happen to you too, because people are watching you know, so give him an opportunity to make amends. Stop saying let him off the hook. He still commit a crime that needs to be paid. But you're giving him the opportunity to pay it on his own, willingly, without judgment coming upon him. So, if you want mercy, have mercy with each other. But don't do it out of wickedness. Don't allow wickedness to survive. Righteousness needs to be upheld, but it can be done with mercy. And... That's how you have peace within a congregation. And that is all we have today in Shalom. Amen.